Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Cash, talk to me about this insane first round that we are witnessing right now. Wolfon, I can see the twinkle in your eyes as we get into this 295th episode of Pound the Rock, because I think, like me, you can you can feel when a special episode is coming. <laughs> And I think you know that there are a couple things that got me fired up uh, that oh, we'll yeah. get into. But in terms of, yeah, the, the playoffs have been insane. I mean, we keep saying it every episode, but they really have been incredible individual performances, awesome competition between teams, the balance, the parity, all of that. It's it's all good stuff. It's been phenomenal. I did laugh at the fact that of the three higher seeds that were facing 3-1 deficits, the, the team that we gave the worst chance to actually pull off the comeback is the lone team that actually won game five at home and that's the memphis yeah. grizzlies although i did say that i was like very confident they would win they were five. gonna yeah. win that game five yeah. that, that didn't surprise me it was yeah. more surprising to me that the other teams yeah uh lost the way that they did yeah <laughs> and um we can definitely get into talking about all that but just in general i mean i guess it's not super surprising because we've been anticipating this pretty much all year but Man, I mean, this first round has really lived up to what we expected in terms of just unpredictability, anarchy, total chaos, hockey playoffs, man. This is what we've been saying. And here we are with, depending on how these two games tonight go, we could have four lower seeded teams winning their first round series. And I couldn't do like the like the entire research myself and like go back through all the seasons in NBA history to figure out if that's happened before. I didn't see if there had been any like ESPN stats and info type of factoid bouncing around. So I can't confirm this, but I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that that's never happened before. Yeah. Someone would... can can get at me and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just going to say I don't think that that's ever happened before where there have been four lower seeded teams winning their first round series. This doesn't happen in basketball, right? Like the Heat were, what were they, the sixth eight seed to ever win? Sixth eight seed to ever first win. First round series. And in the best of seven era, just the third. Yep. And also only the third team to ever beat the number one overall seed in the first right. round. Right. And the first, Milwaukee's the first number one seed of any conference to win less than two play, like to win only one playoff game. So we've talked about all year just how this season in particular, the bandwidth between the best and worst teams has shrunk. Like the kind of middle of the road or lower rung playoff teams are a little bit better, I think, than they typically are. And the top tier teams are a little bit worse. And I, I wonder, you know, how much of that to attribute to just like the way that the league has gone in terms of jump shooting and like the variance that that introduces and whether this is going to be more of like a harbinger of things to come in terms of like the style of play and how that can potentially produce more upsets like this, just because in a small sample, jump shooting variants can really swing outcomes wildly from one pole to another. I hear you. And I definitely think that's part of it. I think the nature of today's game definitely includes more variance because of the over-reliance on threes and jump shooting in general. But I will also say that I still think the biggest part of the balance, the parity and the, and the shrinking of that bandwidth you mentioned is just the nature of how all of these rosters have come together. And the point that even on paper, 
I think you can look at it just as we did coming into the season and say that it's more balanced. And like, you know, if like the 2012 and 2013 heat, like the big three era heat, I still would say are overwhelmed. We're over overwhelming favorites, even in a more jump shot reliant league, the warriors with Kevin Durant, you know what I mean? Would still be like, even in a league with more variants, I would still say they are overwhelming favorites in ways that no team is right now. Um, and I also agree with your, your point about how it could be a harbinger of things to come because the CBA is not going to allow more super teams or anything. It's actually going to slightly prohibit them a bit more because when you look at the additional penalties now coming in for teams over that second apron and the things like they can't use the taxpayer minimum exception, they can't use sign bouts. I'm not saying that's going to be the, you know, the be all end all of dominant teams. One will rise. It happens. There's cycles, but I do think that this balance and parity has some staying power. And I think that's exciting for the league. Look, I'm not at all the type of person who thinks super teams have to be bad. I think some of the most interesting teams and some of the most successful periods in NBA history have been when one or two teams dominate. But I also think this is different and really cool, and it makes the playoffs a really different animal. And I will use that to spin off a little bit into my point that I included in a, a piece I wrote after the Bucks and Heat uh, played each other in game five. And that's that I think now is the time more than ever that the NBA should explore the possibility of reseeding after round one. Because, look, I know that like the, the NBA's reasoning would be the fixed bracket thing is that it makes planning for travel easier, make like planning and scouting from a team perspective easier. Like all those logistics get a little easier the way it is. And, you know, I'm sure it helps office pools as well when you can have a fixed bracket. But if you're talking about rewarding the best teams and what they did in the regular season, uh, reseeding is the way to go. Because if you look at this year, for example, in the East, the second seeded Celtics and third seeded Sixers have to clash in the second round while the fifth seeded Knicks and eighth seeded Heat play. The... Third-seeded Sixers, the 54-win third-seeded Sixers, have to start on the road in the same round that the 47-win fifth-seeded Knicks have home court advantage. Like, that, it just doesn't make sense to me. You could look at the West if things play out the way, you know, if the, if the Warriors and Lakers take care of business, sixth place versus seventh place in the second round, while the Nuggets reward for having the best record in the West is drawing the fourth seeded Suns. Suns have to open on the road while six seeded Golden State starts at home, like in the same round. That doesn't make sense to me. And I'd also say that the NBA is pretty obviously the last few years trying to find any possible way to add more meaning, relevance to the regular season and more incentive for players, right? In the regular season. This one seems like a no brainer to me. You want to incentivize late season games for even surefire playoff teams? How about if they know there's rewards for being higher seeds beyond just the first round, right? Mm-hmm. Other than the natural home court advantage if you draw a lower seed. So I just think um, between all that stuff and between the fact that we are both in agreement that we think this could be a harbinger of things to come and that balance and parity might be here to stay, these upsets might become more frequent than before. I think now is the time for the NBA to really consider reseeding. Yeah, I'd be on board with that. And uh, I mean, I, hockey used to do that, right? And then yep. when they switched to this new divisional format, that obviously changed. But yeah. I think the I, NFL I've is the thought... only league left that recedes after the first round. Yeah. Um, I just can't believe we're heading into the second round where I genuinely have no idea what's going to happen. It's awesome. And I think I'm ultimately going to come into it feeling like 
any of the eight teams that make it through can win. Really? Like to varying degrees, there are obviously teams that sorry, are going to be mean, more Sorry, do you mean could win others. their second round series or can no, win? No, I the mean champ- like could win the championship. Uh, man, listen, I'm not trying to hate on the Knicks, but yeah, you, you are. You've, you've been trying to hate on the Knicks all season. No, I, listen, I think that there have been re- levels of fraudulence to the Knicks all season, but full credit to them for the way they embarrassed the Cavs. All I'm saying is. Even with that, they deserve all the credit in the world for what they've done this season, not taking anything away from them. But do you truly believe they can win the 2023 NBA championship? I truly believe they can beat the Heat and make it to the conference finals. And I kind of oh, believe okay. that if you if you are in the conference finals, you're like a couple of favorable breaks away from winning a championship. Like they would be at the lower end of the probability scale. But like, I don't think... There's no team that's just running away from the pack to me. That I it makes me feel like that I agree with. Even even these like lower rung second round teams can't win. And I'm, I mean, like I'm not gonna go out and bet on the Knicks to to do it or the Heat for that matter. But like, I just think it's crazy how how many possible outcomes there really are. And that includes like if the Grizzlies can make it through the series with the Lakers, I feel like I would give them a shot. As well, and if Kawhi Leonard had been healthy, the Clippers would have been in that mix. And yeah. if the Bucks hadn't pissed all over themselves, they would be in that mix too. It's just that—that's insane to think about. That yeah. you know there are that many teams that conceivably could have and still could win the championship. And just going into this with like really no idea of how things are going to play out is such an unfamiliar feeling for the NBA playoffs in particular. Yeah, agreed. So we do have those two games tonight. And because by the time this goes up, there's going to be like, I don't know, maybe four hours before they start. I don't want to spend too much time talking about them, but I do want to just like sort of quickly run down what happened in those game fives and what we think is going to happen in game six. Uh, The Warriors beat the Kings in just another frantic, extremely fun game, uh, pulling away toward the end with a 123-116 win. Uh, this was the Draymond game to me, and he's been super impactful all series long. But for him to do that in the in the way that he usually does, while also turning into a super efficient scorer, pouring in twenty one points on eight of ten shooting, the most points he's scored in a playoff game, Cash, in six years, including hitting a one legged fadeaway with the Warriors up one and under four minutes to play. I I don't know how to explain that to to anybody or even myself i don't think the warriors knew how to explain i don't know if draymond green knows how to explain that well i haven't listened to uh his podcast so maybe maybe he tried on that episode uh but yeah i mean he was he was ridiculous steph and clay like their shot making down the stretch was absurd wiggins and gp2 i thought were tremendous defensively and then looney i mean his rebounding Mm -hmm. to me just continues to be one of the most important factors in this series. Like whether it's cleaning the defensive glass with his monster box outs or just putting so much pressure on the offensive glass and generating all those extra possessions for the Warriors. And like the Warriors are just always, especially Steph, like they don't they don't look a gift horse in the mouth when they get a second crack on a possession. You know, like Steph is I think he shoots like literally fifty percent on threes after offensive rebounds for his career. It's So that's been absolutely huge. And like, you know, on top of that, I think Looney's short role playmaking has been super sharp. They've kept bringing Draymond off the bench, right? Since his suspension, 
splitting those guys up a little bit more. Not that they haven't been amazing when both of them had been on the court the last couple of games, but splitting them up a little bit more. And when Looney is kind of in that Draymond role, like the short role playmaker, he's like makes the right play every time. Uh, I think he added seven assists in that game after having nine in game three. Um, And then like he and the Warriors collectively, I just feel like continue to completely take Sabonis out of this series. Yep. Like masterclass, you know, big part of that is just like, they're playing way off of him. They're daring him to take those free throw line jumpers doing their damnedest to get through screens. So like the handoff game can't be unlocked. And like, they're trying to make Sabonis be a scorer. And he's really struggled with that. Like he just, the limits of his bag, so to speak, have been exposed a little bit because he just doesn't have like the physicality advantage over Looney or even over Draymond that he does over a lot of big men. And they, they've been able to kind of like sit on his left hand and he's very reluctant to go to his right. And he just, he's been really uncomfortable. And the way that they've taken him out of the series, is like the biggest reason maybe that they're up three, two right now, man, I've, I know perhaps you and our listeners might roll their eyes just because they've heard me say it so many times over the years, but the playoffs really are where your weaknesses get exposed and exploited in ways that they just don't in the regular season because yeah, like a Sabonis who had just a fantastic year, like unbelievable, uh, was so key to the Kings resurgence. He, you know, he'll have a bad game in the regular season. Obviously every star does. And there'll be times when a team might expose him in one game and then you think that's interesting, but like just by nature of the way the games come and you're not playing the same team all the time and you're not playing for your lives, it doesn't become the thing in the regular season. Whereas in the playoffs, when teams are playing for their lives, scouting and preparing and, and honing in on just one team for four to seven games over you know a week and a half, two weeks, and they can and focus on just taking away what they can take away or picking out your flaws these things get magnified in ways and like, you know, and that's how players end up getting hate and being told they can't win. Like whatever, you know, all that BS, but like, this is what it is in the playoffs. I mean, even a guy like Sabonis, who's like a really fantastic players without many flaws, his most glaring ones are magnified to such a degree that it uh, really ends up handicapping his team. Yeah. And I mean, just to put some numbers on it during the regular season, he was at 67% true shooting. Average 7.3 assists against 2.9 turnovers. In this series so far, with like the way that the Warriors are taking away those playmaking opportunities and also just making it super difficult for him to score at the rim, he's at 53% true shooting wow. with 4.4 assists and four turnovers. Wow. Like That's incredible. It's really remarkable what they've been able to do uh, to, to get him off of his game. So... All that in mind, and also, I mean, the fact that Fox, like, he came out and he was hitting his, like, he hit his first three threes of game five, despite that broken finger. But I still think we saw it affect him, especially as the game wore on, where, like, his handle kind of went haywire. He turned the ball over a bunch, like, wasn't really able to finish at the rim. Like, ultimately, I do think we we saw it unwind him a bit. He didn't score in the fourth quarter, I don't think. And like, that's been his quarter all season long. Like the Kings were basically able to hang tough because Malik Monk picked up all of the slack, but I just, you know, without Fox operating at peak capacity and with everything else we've talked about in terms of like the Warriors execution, especially defensively, 
ordinarily, I would say the Warriors just absolutely roll in game six. Like, that's my instinct. But also, I feel like the character of this team that we've seen show up time and time again is such that part of me still expects them to really make a game of this. What do you think? I think the Warriors win, but I think the Kings make a game of it. I can't just this team's MO is not the type to go on the road and lay down in games. Like I think the Kings are going to scrap and claw and be in the game. I think the Warriors will finish them off just because I have a hard time believing the Warriors will now lose at home with the chance to finish this. But I, I, I also don't see the Kings laying down. I think it'll be another great game. It is. I mean, so much of it is contingent to me on like, can Fox be closer to the yeah. first half game five version of himself than he was to the second half version? Cause if he doesn't have it, I just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that they're going to be able to score enough to even keep it close. Um, Lakers Grizzlies, like you mentioned, um, the the Grizzlies had a pretty resounding Game 5 win. And I guess I'm wondering, because I don't know how you felt, but I was certainly confident they were going to win that Game 5. Did you see anything in that game that made you change your mind about their prospects of winning the series? Or was that just sort of like the Game 5 bump, the Lakers took their foot off the gas? LeBron in particular maybe took his foot off the gas yeah. and they're they're going to come out and roll in game six. Is that is that kind of your feeling? Yeah, and it's not even about like, oh, they're going to come out and roll. It's not like I think, you know, they're going to ha- this game's going to be over by the second quarter, but I don't I didn't see anything in that Grizzlies game five win that made me think, oh, the Lakers are in trouble. Like Memphis was at home where they're a great team. They are a good team. They were facing elimination. Um, Jaw and Bain really stepped up. LeBron had maybe the worst playoff game I've ever seen from him. I really doubt that happens again. And the Lakers are now going back home with a chance to close it out as, again, in my opinion, the better team at this point. Um, So, no, I think the Lakers win tonight. But that's not to say I think it's impossible the Grizzlies could beat them. I just think the Lakers are the better team. We're now going home with a chance to close it out. And I think the Grizzlies won a game that they should have been expected to win in game five. Yeah, the biggest factor to me is going to be LeBron. And that yeah. was the reason I spotlighted where I'm like, if there is a reason for optimism for Memphis, it's that LeBron does not look like LeBron right now. And he finishes that game five, five for 17 from the field, one for nine from deep. And the extent to which he's settling for three-pointers while also shooting like 16% from deep in the series is like one of the more alarming aspects of this. But one for nine from deep, 15 points, five assists and five turnovers. So it's possible. And I, I heard Zach Lowe kind of suggest that LeBron was just sort of in chill mode and like saving up for game six, which I do think is possible. But if he can't be the LeBron that we've become accustomed to seeing, then this Lakers team is very beatable. I uh, agree. In, in spite I, of how good AD has been. Yeah, I agree. And I would say that's the reason I don't think they can quite get the job done and win a title or maybe even get to the finals. But I think LeBron is still, even at this stage and even what we've seen from him in this series, good enough that they won't let three chances to close the Grizzlies out pass them by. We'll see. I mean, like, I I think how many minutes AD can play is going to be a big factor because they were plus six in his 35 minutes on court in game five and minus 23 in the 13 minutes he sat. And just, you know, his defense remains, I think, the story of this series. Like, his ability to his ability to seemingly commit to the ball handler in pick and roll and then still recover to the roll man and, like, contest or block his shot. Like, he's, he's just 
done a masterful job defending the Grizzlies pick and roll game. And he also, he blocked a Jaron three pointer in game five. Like he's just been everywhere. And he also really bounced back offensively, right? After a a very tough game four finished with 31 and 19. Um, But I think the Grizzlies have figured some things out just in terms of getting to the rim and scoring at the rim more and more as the series has gone on. And Obviously, you know, like Ja and Bain both went off. They combined for 64 points in that game. And and Ja hit like a bunch of pull-up jumpers against under coverage that was huge. And they sort of stopped dropping against Bain because Bain finally like got his jump shot really going. But the Grizzlies also like they're, they're finding a few more of these counters where like they're, they're running more Spain pick and roll, right? As a way to kind of get AD out of that help position. And then... You know, maybe the the biggest adjustment and the one that could have big implications for Game Six is that super small lineup they rolled out there with Jaron at the five and like the four guards around him, whereas like Tyus Jones, Ja, Bain, and Kennard, and they were actually able to like create a ton of space with that lineup and hit shots and get to the rim. Whereas like you know Brooks continued to struggle; he was three of fifteen from the field and two of ten from deep. If they feel confident, I guess, in their ability to survive defensively with that lineup on the floor for like, I don't know, 15 minutes in game six, then maybe that could be a swing factor. Like their offensive rating with Kennard on the floor in this series is 25 points per hundred better than it is with him on the bench. Like he's been so important to opening things up for them. And I don't really think that Lakers did a good enough job in that game five of like hunting him at the other end. And so I'm curious to see what happens with that battleground in game six. So yeah, that's, I I think, I guess if I'm offering a prediction, I feel like the Lakers are going to win a tight one, but I think it's going to be like a real back and forth battle. I could definitely see the Grizzlies winning. I have a lot more confidence, I think in this one going back for a game seven than in Kings Warriors. But I, I just feel like, there's always these reminders of like how thin the margins of these series yep. can be. And it's just crazy how much, like you go back to that game four, right? Where the Grizzlies were ahead for pretty much the entire second half. You know, they were up by seven late before D'Angelo Russell comes in and hits that flurry of threes up by two on the last possession when LeBron gets like a crazy high off the window layup to go down. And you think about how different the complexion of the series would have been if they'd managed to pull that one out. And like even in the Kings Warriors series, right? Harrison Barnes gets that clean look at a three to put them up 3-1 like the margins are so thin yeah and everything absolutely. can just can just change so fast um okay so yeah those games are going tonight and those could potentially be the last games of the first round so why don't we move on from there to quickly talk about a couple of the, the teams that got eliminated because we each wrote about one of them uh, and we talked about the Cavs kind of a lot on the last episode, so we don't have to go too in-depth there. But I know you wrote about the Clippers and sort of the existential crisis that they're facing with Kawhi now being diagnosed with a torn meniscus and obviously the you know the injury history with him and PG and everything just sort of piling up. What do you think this offseason is going to look like for the Clippers and how are you kind of reflecting on what this season and this postseason was for them? Well, there's another injury-fueled disaster in the end. Um, in terms of what I see their offseason looking like, honestly, not much different than the last. Like the 
point of the piece I wrote, which went up yesterday, was that I understand how underwhelming it probably is for Clippers fans at this point to have to go into another season just being like, well, we're banking on Kawhi and Paul George staying healthy. I get how underwhelming that is. Unfortunately, that's really still your best option and maybe your only option because while it's really easy in the aftermath of another you know, injury fuel disappointment to say, well, that's it. They got to break them up. They got to trade one of them. They got to trade both of them. Like, that is so much easier said than done, especially in the position the Clippers are in. And this is kind of what I explore in the piece because you can run down the different options. Okay, you want to go scorched earth and say, blow the shit out of this thing. It's over. It failed. It can't stay healthy. Trade them both. Start the rebuild. All right. You want to start a rebuild and trade both of those guys while you don't control your own first round pick until 2027. Now, the counter to that could be, hey, wait a minute. The Nets don't control a lot of their own draft capital and they traded Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and you seem higher on them. Well, these things are not equal. The Nets, for one, had already started recouping some draft capital by trading James Harden a year earlier. The Nets already had Nick Claxton and, you know, Cam Thomas, if you want to throw him in there too, but they had some young talent already in place before they traded Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And Kevin Durant had four guaranteed years left on his contract when they traded him, and so they could get this big haul. And so the Nets now have a really good stable of young talent, a pretty good collection of draft capital, even though it's not their own, and have enough in the mix that they should be able to remain at least relatively competitive, even if like a play-in team or something, so that they're the fact they don't own their own draft picks shouldn't bite them in the ass. Like they're not giving up the, t- the number two pick next year or something like that. The Clippers are not in that same situation. If they trade both of them with one guaranteed year left on their contract with all the injury concerns, they're not getting nearly the haul Brooklyn got for KD, obviously. They don't have the young talent to compete in the short term. Like That is not an option for this team in this situation. Then you can look at like, okay, well, what if they trade one of those two guys and now you maybe end up with like the other one and a deeper supporting cast? But you still end up in a situation like that to me is a half measure because you still end up in a situation where you're banking on an oft injured star staying healthy and sure the supporting cast may be deeper, but it also comes with less upside and also breaking news people. The supporting cast isn't the issue and hasn't been the issue here. Although yeah, the not supporting flawless. cast just pushed the Suns. To, exactly. I mean, it didn't push them that hard. Well, I and guess, listen, they played like, their asses off and, and that's what I'm saying. Like the supporting Those games were ca- close. Yes. The supporting cast is more than good enough to help Paul George and Kawhi Leonard compete if those guys are in the trenches with them. Unfortunately, and through no fault of their own, they were not in the trenches with them. They were in their usual spot, which is on the bench in street clothes. So trading one of them, that hoping that like, oh, you you alter the supporting cast, you make it better, and like you only have to bank on one of them, half measure to me, that doesn't work. So what option are you left with? You're left with, you hope against hope, that next year is the one year they can both finally stay healthy together and be healthy when the playoffs roll around and you take your chances. Now, am I saying that's a good option? No. Do I think it'll work? No. They they will most likely not be healthy enough together for long enough to compete. It's just that this is the only option. And so that was the the crux of my piece of what I wrote. It's like, I think my title was run it back question mark. The hopeless Clippers don't have a better option. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. If you disagree with that. What, what's the point of reading the piece? You answered your own question right there in the headline, mate. Uh, no, I mean, I, 
a hundred percent agree. Like this is the bed they made. I don't think anyone at the time, in spite of the extremely high acquisition cost, was saying that they shouldn't have done it. Like they shouldn't have put all their chips in the pot in order to, you know, get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on their team. A team that, you know, even with all they gave up, and obviously the majority of that was was draft capital, but they also, you know, gave up Shea Gilders Alexander and a player who at the time was like, you know, a, a real quality rotation player in Danilo Gallinari. All of that, they still had a deep supporting cast to surround those guys with. And I think it was absolutely the the right gambit for that franchise to take. It has blown up in their faces, not just because of, you know, what has befallen those two guys on the injury front, but obviously what we have seen Shea Gilgis-Alexander turn into. But if you want to take bold risks like this, which you typically have to do, if you want to try and win a championship in this league, there is always the huge downside possibility. And they're reckoning with that right now. But they got to go down with the ship, man. Yeah. Like, they just have to. I'll also throw in, too, and I put the, I, I mentioned this in the piece, like, I, I'm even though I think this has obviously been in the end, an unmitigated disaster because of how the those guys haven't stayed healthy and the fact that that trade is probably going to haunt them now for a long time because they didn't win even at least one together unless they can do it next year. That by no means is me saying the move was not perfectly defensible at the time. Like, yeah, it was Kawhi's injury history a little spotty, sure. He was also coming off of his second finals MVP award. And Paul George, say what you will about how injury prone he's been since the trade, other than that grotesquely broken leg he suffered with Team USA, he was a really durable player before getting to the Clippers. When the Clippers traded Gallo, SGA, and control between swaps and trades of up to seven first-rounders for him, Paul George had missed no more than seven games in a season in seven of the previous eight years. So that's another thing, too, when people talk about, like, well, they knew what they were getting into. Not really. Paul George did not have these injury issues before he got to the Clippers. Yeah, and like you said, Kawhi had sort of gotten on this load management regimen that kept him fresh for one of the great postseason runs of the modern era. And then, honestly, kind of looked on his way to doing it again, like with the Clippers. I mean, he was basically healthy for that entire first season there. And them losing the playoffs that year had nothing to do with him being injured. And the following year had one of, if not his greatest single postseason series ever in dragging them past the Mavericks in the first round. And then, you know, was playing great in the second round against Utah as well before he suffered that ACL injury. Like there's, there's just nothing to do with that at the end of the day. Like those are the breaks. And I think, yeah, their best course of action from here is just to like keep rolling that boulder up the hill and hope that eventually, you know, the, the terrain flattens out a little bit. I think the difficult thing is going to be, it's like, okay, so you have had Kawhi on this load management regimen where he's not playing back to backs, like he's sitting out games for rest, even more so after he's coming back from that ACL injury that cost him, you know, 16 months. Now he tears his meniscus and it's like, okay, like, can you go even further in that direction? Like, I don't know, some guys are just predisposed to these types of injuries and there isn't anything that you can do about it. Like you can do everything you can to mitigate the potential consequences, but at the end of the day, you might just be 
at the mercy of the injury gods. Yeah. And this is my last point on this. And this comes back to another thing that you've all heard me say a ton of times over the years. And that is that there are no guarantees when a team flames out or disappoints or doesn't meet a certain expectation and it looks like they lost a chance at a championship, there are no guarantees they get another shot no matter what the roster looks like, no matter what the contracts look like. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sometimes your first great chance at a title is actually your last and your best shot at it. And the one postseason that Kawhi and PG started and finished together, the Clippers blew that 3-1 series lead in the second round against Denver. And at the time, I think the even though they got clowned for it, and I think rightfully so, even the people like myself who were admonishing how bad they had been, that team collapsed in that playoffs, still looked at it as like, okay, they still have Kawhi and PG though, you know, long term. Like first of many chances they'll be back. And they literally have not started and finished a playoffs together since then. And then they also kind of have this second luxury tax apron yes. looming as a you know a, a potential limiting factor in terms of yep. what they can do, uh, you know the the pieces that they can put around those guys moving forward. Now, maybe you know this because you I, I'm guessing you dove into it a little yep. bit in writing that piece. So that second apron, kind of the restrictions that that come with it. That's not going to kick in until the the 2024 offseason. Is that right? Or well, it would, in terms of, no, it would kick in. It's going to kick in this offseason? takes effect July, for whenever the new league year starts, you know, when the moratorium ends, that first week of July. And I assume that based on the ESPN projection was that the Warriors, the Clippers, and the Heat will be the three teams over the second apron. Now, if that's the case, they're not supposed to be able to have access to the taxpayer mid-level. Now, I don't unless they say or or be able to aggregate salaries correct in trade right or be able to sign buyout candidates once the season starts whose pre pre buyout salary exceeded the taxpayer min level so for example this year had the rules been in place they would not have been able to add Westbrook um, it's just uh, yeah like they're they're really up against it and again that just kind of all goes towards my point of why I don't think they have any. There are many options, let alone any better options, other than just running it back and hoping like this next year is the first of the five, or actually the second of the five, that they can have both those guys healthy in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, that really just sort of puts them in a place where, because I'm trying to think, do they do they have anyone major coming off of their books? Like, is Eric no. Gordon expiring? He's got a non-guaranteed. His contract okay. is non-guaranteed. Westbrook and Plumley are the only two guys, you know, key guys coming off the books. And I don't think they have bird rights on Russ. Nope, they don't. So they can't re-sign him unless he wants Un- to come very back Very unlikely a, unless he unless wants, he wants to, to come back on a minimum. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's going to be tough, man. And honestly, I think I because of that, because they have no way to replace these guys, really, they probably just wind up re-signing Gordon yes. rather than, or not re-signing him, but like picking Keeping up that, yeah. his guarantee. So yeah, they're they're this is going to affect them these yeah. new rules uh more so than almost any other team. Um okay, did you did you have any thoughts kind of on the Cavs and I, the way things ended for them that we didn't get to on the last episode or No, I was really disappointed in how feebly they went out and um yeah. and 
not crazy surprised, but more so disappointed how early in the playoffs, some of the limitations they knew they ha- we ha- they had, sorry, and was also not necessarily surprised, but disappointed in how early in the playoffs, the limitations we knew they had sunk them. But uh, I know you have a piece going up today about them, so I'll, uh, I'd rather listen to what, what you have to say about them. Well, again, this is really mostly stuff we hit on last episode, and I was kind of thinking that we would see them clean some of it up in order to extend the series. I didn't expect them to win the series, but like you, I was a little disappointed with how meekly they bowed out. And I just came away feeling, and you know this isn't how I usually like to talk about these kind of series. Like, there's always so many different reasons that a series goes the way that it does beyond just these blanket statements like this one team was more physical or tougher or just wanted it more. But I I honestly came away from the series feeling like the Cavs just weren't tough enough. And the Knicks wanted it more. (laughs) I don't know if the Knicks wanted it. I know. I I think the Cavs really wanted it, but I think they just weren't tough enough and they were out physical like at pretty much every turn. Especially in in the front court, man. Like, it was it was glaring. It really was. And honestly, if if that wasn't you know plainly obvious to the naked eye, you can just go and watch some of the post game press conferences from pretty much every member of the Cavs. They all came out and said exactly that. Like they just came out and admitted it. Like we weren't physical enough. We weren't t- tough enough. Jared Allen's like the lights were brighter than I expected. You know, like they were <laughs> rattled. That's a tough thing to say, but cool and you can tell. Admitting it. Well, that's the thing. Like it's not. I have no problem. I know it's it's a little bit taboo to express self-doubt or show weakness in that way. But I think everyone would have been thinking it anyway. Yes. And I do admire the honesty and the, you know, the the self-reflection in that statement just being like cuz that makes me feel like if you understand that that's what happened, then that gives me some more, I guess, confidence that you're going to be able to take steps toward rectifying that. Now, how they're actually going to be able to do that or if they're going to be able to is sort of another matter. And there is still all of the kind of like roster construction stuff and the, and the tactical issues that we hit on last time at where, you know, the their inability to find uh, the right answer on the wing bled into all of these different issues. You know, one of them I mentioned was Allen and Mobley on the short roll, how much those guys struggled in this series. Cash, do you know what the Cavs averaged in terms of points per possession on plays finished by their roll men in this series? I don't, but I assume you're going to tell me. The average like on plays like that typically during the regular season is like 1.2 points per possession. Mm-hmm. Cavs finished with 0.49 points per oh. possession from their roll men. Oh, and like, again, part of that is that the Knicks are bringing over these aggressive tags and they can afford to because there are a lot of non-shooters on the floor for Cleveland. But a number like that is just never solely attributable to a defensive scheme. Like, you got to be able to do better than that. And those guys, I mentioned like the short roll decision making that I thought was really poor. Their finishing was really poor. Like, when, you know, when they tried to go up and finish through the help, they were kind of flinging up like awkward hook shots and floaters. So I don't know. I, I look at that issue and I'm like, how are they really going to solve this? Because that that bled into Mitchell and Garland's struggles because of all the extra bodies that they were seeing. 
and it bled into the rebounding struggles because the Knicks, you know, when it wasn't a Coro, didn't feel comfortable with anybody guarding Jalen Brunson one-on-one and had to send him extra attention. And that left them scrambling and naked on the defensive glass. Like all these things are connected. And I'm trying to think of how a team with this deficiency on the wing and with this evident problem in terms of like experience will help some of that just in terms of like them looking rattled, I guess, at times and not dealing with the physicality well. But part of it is also that like, you know, they have this tall front court, but not necessarily like a hefty front court. Yeah. You know, Evan Mobley is going to fill out and get stronger, but he's like a long legged dude with, I think, a high center of gravity. Right. Like, I don't know if he's ever going to be the type of guy who can play the five full time, for example. And then you have these two small guards in the backcourt who are phenomenal offensive players and who really compete defensively, but they have certain physical limitations. So how do you overcome those issues, especially given the the kind of cap situation and the lack of draft picks in the cupboard? Oh, I think it's going to be tough. Basically the one avenue that I kind of landed on is like, oh, okay, maybe that makes sense. Is like, do you look to trade Allen to make that, that big upgrade on the wing. And then I'm thinking like, man, who, what, what high quality two way wings are really out there theoretically available and on teams that are looking for centers. Yeah, no, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers should be very disappointed that the Raptors already traded for Jakob Pertl and will likely resign them. Cause if not, as we discussed off the air, Allen for OG would have been perfect for both teams. But like even that, after watching this series, I just kind of would have come away feeling like, do the Raptors really want to do that? Like, is that good asset management? No, I, I, I don't necessarily think it would be a, a win or a home run for the Raptors. And I think they should be, regardless of what they gave up for him, is it like, I think they should be pretty happy with having Yak as their center for the next couple of years, whatever it is. I'm saying for Cle- from Cleveland's perspective, they should be upset that it worked out that way because I think they would have at least had a shot at getting OG by putting Allen on the table. And now, now if you're the Raptors, you're looking at being like, well, no, we're not doing that because we already traded for Jakob Hurdle and we think he probably fits us better. I mean, I just, I don't know that they're there yet, right? They're yeah. still super young. Mitchell's only 26. Garland's 23. Mobley's 21. So they don't have to make any rash decisions. I just felt... Like a, a series like that, even when it comes very early in a team's sort of competitive cycle, is bound to lead to some tough questions and some self-reflection. So I don't know. I think it's it's clear, like they're going to come away with this feeling like, okay, we, we have some issues that we know we need to address. How they address them is going to be interesting. Is it just like finding a kind of low-end starting three with the mid-level exception? You know, is it looking to go that trade route? Is it, I don't know, is it just banking on Okoro, who's also only 22, taking a huge step forward offensively? Is it banking on Mobley, just getting that much better? I mean, they're, all of those are like reasonable, except maybe the Okoro one, like, because I, I don't think he's really even shown like the outline of being an above average offensive player, but like, it's reasonable for them to exercise patience here and not, jump to any decisions right away after like this group has had one yeah. playoff series together. 
I agree with you, but I'd also say they do have to consider the fact that this might only have a couple years of runway left because Mitchell has two guaranteed years left on his contract. And I know all the reports are that he's happy there. He's liked his time there and they could end up offering the most money and all that. But I also think based on the way Mitchell's career has gone, I think not even that he's for sure going to leave Cleveland, but I think he would definitely want to test free agency and see what's out like. You know, he wanted it to Utah, but didn't go to his preferred destination. He's made it work so far in Cleveland, but I just think that's the kind of profile of a guy, of a star who, when they finally get their chance, will want to at least experience free agency. And if that's the case, Cavs only really have two guaranteed years of runway left with this core. It happens. It comes quick, man. I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but like, no, it, no, I agree. I, I that's I wrote that in the piece. Like these yeah. competitive cycles almost never tend to last as long as people exactly. expect them to. But I do think, you know, first order of business for the Cavs front office this offseason is trying to convince Mitchell to sign an extension, right? For sure, they should try. So, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be an interesting offseason for them, but possibly a totally uneventful one. Like, I wouldn't be surprised at all if all they did was, like, you know, sign a mid-level wing and call it a day. And I don't think that would be necessarily the wrong approach either, but I can also see them doing that and, like, ultimately having a very similar outcome in the playoffs next year. Like, this was... I was high on this team this season and definitely thought they were going to win this series. So this was eye-opening for me as well and sort of changed my feelings on not necessarily the long-term outlook for the team, but definitely the short-term outlook. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's take the break there. Uh, It's taken us like 45 minutes cash, but when we come back, we're finally going to get to the main course of this episode. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. We're finally here. We got to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned off the top, the only one seed in NBA history to fail to even win two games in their first round series. There were extenuating circumstances. Giannis missed almost all of game one. Didn't play in game two or three. Came back for games four and five. They were both losses, so that makes the excuse seem, you know, a little bit less valid. But ultimately, if he's healthy for the entire series, it probably looks different. But still. But still. Game four, they're up 12 with six minutes left. They lose. We talked about that already. Game five, back at home. Up 16 going into the fourth quarter. Surely this can't happen again. But it happened again. Yeah. They shot three for 19, I think, in that fourth quarter. Dude, they shot between fourth quarter and overtime. They shot five of 25 with seven turnovers. Just disgusting. And like yeah. then just like these little mistakes. Like they didn't have Brooke Lopez in the game for that final heat possession of regulation. Yeah, because I think Bud overreact like overreacted to the fact that Spo took Bam off. But like you don't have your best rim protector in the game when the other team when you're up, you're protecting a two point lead. Did with Spo take se- Bam? I thought Bam fouled out. Isn't no, that- he fouled out in overtime. Okay, Spo took him out 
coming to go into that last play. And the Bucks, if you remember, hand Lopez on, and then Bud calls him back, and they, they pull a little switcheroo there. And that's the only thing I can think of. Like, did Bam say, hey, did Bud say, hey, Bam's not on the court. They're going to run some tricky stuff with a lot of movement, and Brooke can't keep up with that. we got to get him off. But, like, again, you're protecting a two-point lead while playing for your lives with two seconds left, and you don't have your best rim protector out there. And then yeah, they and left it. He had a timeout in his pocket. When, with half a second left, now the chances they would have got a game-winning shot, unlikely. But you would have given yourself a shot, advanced the ball with half a second. There's time. Then they left two. He left two timeouts in his pocket while that last friggin' possession of the Bucks season ended with Grayson Allen in the middle of a Euro step. Are you effing serious, bud? You can't make this shit up. I can't, like, it's just... It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And okay, so like the last possession, not having Brooke out there, it's somewhat justifiable. You you can't get beat by a two. Even though at that point, once they tied it, I'm like, there's no chance they're winning in overtime. <laughs> you can't get beat by a two. You can get beat by a three. So I guess there's some sense in saying like, let's take you know one of our slower defenders off the floor and not get beat by a three. But man, that looks bad. Not using the timeout with 0.5 left. And then Bud just like admitting after the game, like, yeah, we should have used that timeout. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Bud. It's just, I mean, the crazy thing is, so all this talk, postseason after postseason after postseason, is like how badly the Bucks' half-court offense falls off and lets them down. And it, it wasn't even, like that wasn't the biggest issue for them in the series, even though it showed up Yes, it was an at issue. the worst times, right? Yes. On the whole, you know their their half court offense in the series was like more or less fine. It was like ninety eight ish points per hundred possessions, like fine. It's just that like they went through these unbelievable droughts where all their worst habits came out, and you know they completely fell apart while the Heat were able to chip away at these leads and. You know, still, I, I I come away from this feeling like it was still a defensive loss at the end of the day because they allowed one of the worst offensive teams in the league to put up a 119 offensive rating in this series. You know, allowed Jimmy Butler to have one of the greatest individual postseason series I've ever seen without really throwing a ton of different coverages at him, without throwing double teams at him to get the ball out of his hands, without shading, you know, aggressive nail help his way really just going down with the ship, like sticking with mostly single coverage against him and ultimately paying the price for it. I, I think that's like, yes, the, the execution in crunch time, the, the putrid offense in like fourth quarters and overtimes that still very much matters. But at the end of the day, like they, they lost a series at the defensive end of the floor. And like, I, I don't know how to feel about it because the, process and like the idea behind it in the big picture is generally sound they forced the heat into a ton of pull-up jumpers and the bucks scheme all season has been designed to do exactly that it used to be like yeah they would give up all those kind of mid-range jumpers and pull up threes because of their drop coverage but they would also bring a lot of help and that would a lot, like that would open them up to catch and shoot threes. Like when you look at their shot diet and all the threes, the opponent threes they cut out of that this year, it was all catch and shoot threes that they managed to cut out with their defensive tweaks. 
And so they did that in this series, right? Like they were the 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 Heat took more pull up jumpers in the first round than any team except for Phoenix. And the Heat are not the Suns in terms of pull up jump shooting, except that in this series they very much were. In this series, they were like the best pull up jump shooting team that anyone has ever seen, close to sixty percent effective field goal percentage on pull up jumpers. So that's why I'm kind of of two minds about it. In that, you know, you don't you don't necessarily have the wrong idea. But also, you can't... This has been a recurring thing with Bud, right? Like, you can't treat the playoffs like the regular season. There is not necessarily any tomorrow where the variance is going to, like, swing back in your direction and it's going to, like, even out over time. You have to react to what is happening in the moment. And that, you know, has proven to be their undoing, not for the first time in the Bud and Holzer era. And that is what I find inexcusable about it. That he has not learned from those past failures about the need to adjust and adapt on the fly in the postseason compared to the regular season. And not all on Bud, like fine, you can look at up and down the roster. You know, Giannis's comments, which we're, we'll get into the comments that everyone has been talking about, the failure stuff. That's one thing. I have very passionate th- thoughts about that. But another comment Giannis made after that game that didn't get any attention and I found very interesting and also have passionate thoughts about is that he said after the elimination that, you know, the the Bucks in hindsight, they could have maybe adjusted to the way they were guarding Jimmy, maybe throwing more double teams at him, maybe like come up with different looks. And Giannis said, this was in uh, the ESPN story uh, after the, the game five loss. He says, out of respect, you've got to let the coach make the adjustment. At the end of the day, I wish I could have guarded him more, though. And if you remember, he said almost this exact same thing three years ago when Jimmy Butler and the underdog Heat similarly punked Giannis, Bud, and the Bucks in the second round and beat them in five, I think, when the Bucks were, the num- again, the number one overall seed. At the time, I was critical of those comments and said, dude, do you understand that you're Giannis Antetokounmpo? You're, at the time, you know, the two-time reigning MVP. Do you understand the power that superstars of your ilk have in this league and the fact that if you wanted to that bad, trust me, you would have been able to. You don't, like, I understand respecting the coach. You have a humility about you that is very likable, but, like, come on, man. Grab this game and this season and your life, like, by the balls here. And he didn't. Okay. Then they win well, a championship. Okay, let me let me just jump in to say, when Giannis got matched up with Butler on switches or even as his primary defender, Jimmy gave him buckets too. I like, know that. I know that Jimmy gave everyone, but I'm not saying it would have helped. I'm I, I'm saying to say that again three years after you said it last time, as if you you are helpless to change that. Right. And that's what I'm saying. So just like I'm saying, it's inexcusable that Bud hasn't learned certain things. In all these playoff failures, it's also inexcusable that Giannis is saying the exact same thing he said three years ago when it's like, dude, you still, now you're a champion in addition to being a two-time MVP and are who you are in the league. And you're still playing this little like goody two-shoes. Wow, you got to respect the coach. And yeah, I would have loved to guard him more. Then effing guard him. Tell Bud you, that's what you, this is what's happening. The same way Kawhi reportedly did in the middle of that Raptors Bucks series in 2019, when Nick wanted to Nick Nurse wanted to make adjustments, and Kawhi said, "Well, I'm guarding Giannis." That's one of the adjustments. Giannis ain't that guy. Okay, he's a great he for all of Giannis's greatness, and I I think he is on balance the best player in the world right now. He's not that guy, and that's a problem. When like 
you can't you don't want to grab the game or the game plan by the balls because God forbid you upend or upset your coach or go over your coach's head. But then you want to comment after, you know, well, maybe we could have done things. You got to respect the coach, but I would have liked to guard him. Or you said the same thing three years ago. How did you not learn from this? Like, and that it all just becomes so perplexing to me because it's like they grew and won the title and now the way they went out against the Heat and Butler and like is just so reminiscent of the reasons and the ways and the issues that popped up when they were going out sad in the couple years they were the number one overall seed before winning the title and like that's inexcusable to me to go back to those habits and tendencies that sunk you before you got over the hump you start looking at it, and look, I know we talked about the margins. I know those margins, those thin margins exist in the playoffs. At the end of the day, a win is a win. That What they did in 2021, they won, fair and square. But I, I mentioned it on Twitter, like, all of the Bucks, Bud, the front office, Giannis, everyone, should be thanking whatever or whoever they pray to that KD's toenail was on the line in 2021 because... 2019, 2020 is the number one overall seed. This year, last year was different. I thought they they played a tough series against Boston. You lose some, that's fine. But like without Middleton, without Middleton as well, yes. But for the most part, if not for that KD tone along the line, like this team's performance and disposition in the playoffs, pretty much top to bottom, has been embarrassing. I do think I'll I'll sort of address all of that. Uh, piece by piece. But I do think it's interesting to your point to contrast Giannis saying that, like, I wanted to guard him more, but you have to defer to the coach, to Spolstra coming out and being like, yeah, I had drawn up a play for the end of regulation. And Jimmy was like, no, I'm I'm, I'm getting the ball. You know, like that's... Yeah. And can I, before you think, could I just piggyback off that one and to say that, like, what I mentioned with Giannis not being that guy... That's exactly it. Jimmy is. And that's not even me saying Giannis isn't as good. Like, Giannis on balance has been the better player than Jimmy Butler the last few years. Like, I think most people would pick him over him. But in terms of, like, that guy, being that guy, the level of dog in them, Jimmy is on another level in that regard. And I, I don't want to get too far because we're going to talk about the Giannis comments later. But, like, I think it's, like, fair to say without necessarily taking anything away from Giannis's greatness that it's possible he will leave one or maybe even more championships on the table because of the difference in that mentality. So uh, this is a good opportunity to me to kind of reflect on all the stuff that we talk about a lot where it's like in the playoffs when everything can turn on the smallest little detail, it's just really important to keep the big picture in mind. And... That can cut both ways, right? I remember saying when they won the championship, that run, especially, you know, in the finals, was really impressive. They closed out that postseason in very impressive fashion, particularly Giannis. But it was striking to me how easily it could have gone the complete other direction where if KD's toe was not on the line when he hit that shot, they lose what frankly would have been an embarrassing series to a very banged up Nets team. Bud would have been out of a job, no question about it. And instead they go on and win the title. The oh. year before that, they're up 2 nothing on the Raptors, have them on the ropes in overtime in game three. 
a couple of things break differently in that game and the Bucks very likely win the championship that year. If Middleton's healthy last year, pretty good chance the Bucks win the title. Like, And so you could be looking at a situation where it's like, actually they won in 2019, lost in 2020, lost in 2021, won again in 2022. And it's not this like, you can take it as a whole and be like, oh, they won the title and I thought everything was going to be different. And now you see they're doing all the same things. Well, actually they've kind of been the same team the entire time. And we like to have these sort of like tidy narratives where everything moves in this linear fashion. I think this dovetails nicely actually with like the Giannis comments, but like, I think in reality, it's like, yeah, of of course there is growth and there is change happening, but I I don't think that these moments necessarily have the kind of significance that we like to apply to them all the time. And I especially remember after that game six, where he had 50 points and shot what 17 or 18 for 20 from the free throw line. I remember having this conversation with you where you're like, I think he's put all that psychic baggage to rest. And I think he's just like not going to have these issues shooting free throws in the playoffs. And I was like, yeah. not okay. We know how these things work. Yeah. Doing it once does not mean like you're free of the pressure forever. It's always about what have you done for me lately? There is going to come another moment where he is under extreme pressure to do it again. And it's not just going to go away. And he shot 10 for 23 from the free throw line in this yes. elimination game. And just for the record, it's not that I thought he would all of a sudden miraculously be like a knockdown free throw shooter the rest of his career, but I did think the the demons he and the Bucks had overcome in that playoff run, and specifically him in that finals, just meant that he would no longer really beat himself. You know, he might have a bad free throw shooting game here and there, but he would not, and the Bucks would not beat themselves the way they ended up doing this year. I didn't think that would happen again after the way they finished 2021. Yeah. I think, uh, I guess, I'm not saying it was like a not fair thing to expect, but I think it's just like a good reminder that, yeah, like, the first of all, the championship does definitely take a certain amount of pressure off of him, off of the whole situation with the Bucks. But I, I would caution against just feeling like that one championship changes everything in terms of like the DNA of the team. And I feel the same way about, the way that they've lost some of these series. I don't think it is necessarily ever as good or as liberating or as bad or damning as it appears when these small sample sizes swing one way or another. Obviously, I'm always like, you know, trying to focus on like process more so than results. And I do think there were a lot of process problems with the way that this series was played and the way that it was coached in spite of the kind of extenuating circumstances with, with the injury and like shooting variants and things like that. That's, that's kind of where I land on it. So because of that, because of like the way that, Bud in particular coached the end of that game five, it's very tough for me to imagine them bringing him back. Like, I kind of feel like this has to be the end of the line for him. I agree. And I think if that does happen, It'll be a very complicated legacy that he leaves in Milwaukee. But ultimately, I still think a really positive one. Like if you Look. think about what the team was before he took over and what he turned it into, in spite of what you want to say about him as a playoff coach, I've said it before. I think he's like one of the great macro tacticians of his age. And those tactics were designed, like perfectly calibrated to just rack up a ton of regular season wins. It also helped them win a championship. 
but it has also produced some of the disappointment that we've seen in the playoffs because of his inflexibility when it comes to those principles. Yeah, he was the head coach for the team that won the franchise's first championship in 50 years, and his strategic... Number one seed in the NBA three times. Yeah, and his strategic vision for a Giannis-led team and with Brooke Lopez and all that is the reason the Bucks became perennially good enough to become champions. Full stop. I think you can also... So I you can say Bud's hiring there was a big part of them eventually becoming champions. I think you can also say his postseason performance from a coaching standpoint factored into the reason they didn't win more than one. Like, I think both those things can be true. And that's not even me saying he's a terrible coach or that the last five years weren't worth it for the Bucks. Not at all. But I, I do think both those things can be true. And I also think it's interesting the parallels with the Budenholzer era and the Nick Nurse era in Toronto based on the fact Budenholzer was originally reported to be the favorite to get the Raptors job after Dwayne Casey was fired in 2018. Uh, there was like com- conflicting reports at the time of whether Budenholzer kind of turned it down or didn't have a great interview. And then anyway, he took the Bucks job, wanted to coach Giannis, understandable. Nick Nurse gets the Raptors job, beats Bud in the playoffs in, in 2019 en route to the Raptors championship. Bud ends up winning it in 2021. Now they're, you know, Nick Nurse is out of a job in 2023 and Bud might join him. So I, I do think that those are interesting parallels as well. Part of me really wants to see Nurse wind up coaching the Bucks because and Bud in he, his tactically, like he's the polar opposite of Bud, at least in the way that he's coached those Raptors teams. Now, would he change his philosophy to suit the Bucks personnel? Maybe, but I have a hunch that that team would wind up looking an awful lot different than it's looked under Bud. And that fascinates me, that possibility. Yeah. Uh, and, okay, let's get into this before we yeah. get out of here, Cash. Let's go up with a was, bang. Was, was this Bucks season a failure? <laughs> 100% yes. And I don't know, Wolfon, I don't know if you want to go make yourself a coffee. I don't know if you want to take a nap while I go, <laughs> while I go through all my thoughts here. Because I'm going to try to do it as quickly as possible, but it... it let me go through all my thoughts. Get it all out, man. Okay. First of all, I will acknowledge that Giannis was clearly frustrated by the fact he was dealing with the same question from the same reporter two years in a row immediately upon elimination. There was some frustration there. I do get that. That still, to me, doesn't excuse this whole thing. And there's also a big difference between last year and this year in terms of how the Bucks were eliminated. Now, I get the gist of what Giannis was saying. I really do, okay? I'm not some cold-hearted monster. And I can appreciate the perspective it takes to think like that so quickly after a humiliating defeat. But there is a huge, huge difference between acknowledging you and your team will learn and get better while admitting your failures, which, by the way, again, the Bucks have grown from and thrived after failure before. Big difference between that and pretending failure doesn't exist or whatever BS he was trying to pre- uh, preach. Now, don't get me wrong. In the grand scheme of life, obviously Giannis Antetokounmpo and his teammates are not failures. As NBA players, obviously not failures. But he wasn't asked that. And to say this season and the ultimate result of this season wasn't a failure, to say there's no failure in sports, what the hell are you smoking, Giannis? The whole point he made about like, well... To the reporter, I believe it was Eric Neem from The Athletic. Well, if when you don't get a promotion every, if you don't get a promotion every year, is that failure? Like, dude, come on, get a grip. There's a big difference between pro sports and a run-of-the-mill office job. Then he asked, you know, if Michael Jordan's nine non-championship years should be considered failures. Do you know who would say yes? Michael Jordan. And 
that's in and of itself can also be dumb, by the way, okay? Not every one of those Jordan non-title years was a failure. Jordan would say they were. I don't agree. Just like not every single one of Milwaukee's non-title years with Giannis has been a failure. Just like not every non-title season in NBA uh history is a failure, okay? 29 teams should not look at their seasons as failures. But the team with the best overall record, led by the player who's thought to be the best in the world right now, with two core pieces in potentially Middleton and Lopez, set for free agency, lost in the first round in five games. And they blew double-digit fourth-quarter leads in the last two games, including Game 5 at home, where, as I mentioned, they went 5-for-25 with seven turnovers over the fourth quarter and overtime. In the sports world, Giannis, that is called failure. And by the way, as you mentioned, he went 10-of-23 from the free-throw line in that elimination game, was so rattled by the thought of being back on the line that he nearly turned the ball over late in regulation while playing hot potato with the ball while Miami tried the foul. He himself fouled a jump shooter while the Bucs were trying to rally late in overtime. And like, I'm not even saying you have to look at Giannis differently as a player now. I'm not saying this year's playoff failure is a referendum on his career. I'm not saying that every ounce of work he and his team put in this year or whatever they learned this season is a waste of time. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not taking away from who he is as a person, which is a really humble, likable, seemingly awesome guy. But that doesn't change the fact that his little emotional pep talk, all it was doing is sugarcoating that his team's season ended in failure. But no, no, let's all cry tears of joy and sing Kumbaya because Giannis said there's no failure in sports. Give me a break. Give me a goddamn break. And one more thing. If one more person like replies to this, well, he missed two and a half games and played through a bruised back. Yeah, I get that. I acknowledge that. It's fair to consider what, you know, the back injury, how it played a part in his performance, how his absence played a part. But he was back for Milwaukee's two most embarrassing losses of the series. And the Heat were without Tyler Hero for four and a half games and still did to the Bucks defense what you mentioned they did. They end up losing Oladipo too. Like, stop bending over backwards to make excuses for Giannis and these dudes. They failed this season based on their goals and expectations. You know, Giannis said after the series about the Heat, it felt like they were playing to beat us and we were playing to win a championship. You know what? I'm pretty sure Jimmy Butler is playing to win a title, bro. And I'm also pretty sure that dude would consider losing in the first round a failure even as the number eight seed. But no, there's, there's no failure in sports. Don't call this Bucks season a failure. Get the fuck out of here. So this might surprise you, Cash, because I know I'm typically the bring as much nuance and perspective to every situation as possible and always focus on the big picture and process over results. But I mostly agree. I'm not as fired up about it as you are. I agree with your general premise, if not necessarily the manner of communication uh, or all the points that you made, because I think a lot of it is sort of just about semantics, right? And if Giannis is at a point, like nobody is realistically thinking that Giannis isn't sitting there super fucking disappointed of course, and thinking about what he can do to make sure that that never happens again. That dude works harder than anybody in the league has turned himself into an absolute monster. And there's no doubt in my mind, he's going to stew on that loss and he's going to do whatever he has to do to come back better and, and try and climb that mountain again and get to the top of that mountain again. I, I firmly believe that's going to happen, whether it's in Milwaukee or somewhere else. So 
it doesn't really bother me that much. Even if I don't agree generally with the premise of what he was saying, it doesn't bother me that much for him to feel differently about it and say he doesn't view it as failure. And again, I just think ultimately a lot of that is a semantic distinction where he's like, you know, that's not the way he wants to look at it, but he's obviously super disappointed by it. And that's really all that matters, right? He's not, it's not like he's trying to brush it off or make excuses. Like, he he's not an excuse maker. Like when when Giannis comes up short, he takes accountability. He doesn't lay blame at other people's feet. He hasn't like tried to to push himself out of Milwaukee or like press the front office to do X Y Z. He's taken that accountability and he's put it on his his own shoulders. And to me, that kind of insulates him from any criticism that like you know him saying that it's not a failure makes him soft of heart or mind. Like that's I don't I don't believe he's soft. I think. I'll you can continue, but I definitely don't want that to be confused. Like everything I said, I don't think Giannis and Ted Kupo soft. I think he has had his story, his journey, his entire life journey, let alone his journey as a professional athlete is one of the most inspiring tales of resilience and overcoming the odds of almost any athlete of our generation. So that's, that's why it just doesn't ruffle my feathers really. Cause I'm like, Okay, like that's a healthy perspective to have, you know, and the point I agree with is like, it's very different to say that about a season where it's like, I don't know, maybe you were a good team, but not great. Or maybe you were like a fringe contender and you lost a competitive second round series. You know, if the Knicks go and lose to the Heat, like, I don't know that they're going to be sitting there thinking of their season as a failure. And I don't think they should. Mm -hmm. It's obviously very different when you are the number one overall seed, the championship favorite, and you go out the way that they did. Of course, that that makes it a failure. That's also why I feel like, and and I want to say like, Eric, I, I think it's the name is how you pronounce it, but he's incredible. Like he, yeah. he is one of the best beat writers in the business. Does such a good job covering the Bucks, and I have a ton of respect for the work he does. I didn't think that it was a good question, and I think the the fact that it elicited the response that it did made it seem like it was a great question because look, if all that matters is you got that response and like you've sparked this whole conversation. So in that sense, this is very much like a, okay, it was good result, bad process to me. Right. Because ultimately everybody in that room, even probably Eric asking that question had an answer in their mind. Like they were all thinking that the season was a failure. Did they really need Giannis to like come out and say it? you know he's bitterly disappointed by this. Like, what does it matter if he comes out and says, yeah, it was a failure? Because that is the obvious one-word answer to that very bad question, in my opinion. And so it's like, okay, what like, what are you looking to get out of this? And if, you, you know, I guess maybe he was thinking he would get a response like that, which, great. But if he'd come out and said, yeah, obviously the season was a fucking failure. What are you talking about? We just lost to the eighth seed. I wouldn't feel any better or worse about him or the Bucks or any of this. I hear you. The, I'm torn on how I feel about the question because there's a part of me that thinks the, the issue I have with the question is if you really did ask the exact same thing after elimination last year, at that point, I'm with you in that it's like, okay, what are you fishing for and what do you really expect? But then there is another part of me that says, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's validity in his question because perhaps based on the fact of how Giannis answered his question last season when the results were very different 
because it was a competitive second round series as defending champions. Maybe he really did, Eric, maybe really did see it as like, here's how Giannis felt last year, but this year is so different because, in my opinion, the stakes were higher just in, in terms of um, what the Bucks roster might look like next season. And they went out in much more humiliating fashion. They were the number one seed. Like, I think there are reasons why if you did ask that question last year and you got maybe the kind of response Giannis gave this year, you might think, you know what? I asked him this question last year, but so much is different this year. I'm curious to know if he views it the same way. Now, it might be, could have been phrased better. Like perhaps he could have said, listen, I asked you this question last year. You said you didn't, you didn't see it as a failure because you could learn from it, whatever. But based on the difference in how this season ended and maybe the expectations or the stakes, do you view it differently? Like, I think it could have been asked in a different way that maybe would have been better, but I do understand the premise of the question. If he was thinking of how Giannis answered it last year and how this year is different. Last thing I'll say about it is I just, and and you hit on it too, but the kind of clumsy comparison to like an everyday job where it's like, do you get a promotion every year? I, I, think is a good reflection of the fact that like you cannot compare pro sports to a different kind of job or like any other aspect of normal life. It's, it's just not the same thing, I, you know, for better or worse, I guess, right? Like in sports, I, you know, I think one of the things that appeals to people, one of the great things about it, and I guess one of the terrible things about it is that there are these binaries. Like there is sort of like an objective measure of success and disappointment or failure, if you want to call it that, where it's like you won or you lost. And for us, like doing our jobs in sports media, you know, like for Eric writing for The Athletic, it's like those types of markers, like they don't exist in the same way. There's no championship for us at the end of a season of covering the NBA, you know, like it's just an impossible comparison to make. I feel the same way. This is like off topic, but like when people want to like abolish the draft and they're comparing it to like other jobs, like imagine if like you didn't get to choose where you got to work, but you got to understand that this league is like a hundred percent contingent on fan engagement. That is what allows these players to make millions and millions of dollars. That's part of the deal. You enter into this with the understanding that it's different. And ultimately, you know, you'll get to free agency and you'll get to make that decision. And if you have to spend the first seven years of your career playing in Oklahoma City when you'd rather be playing in LA, that's just sort of part of the trade-off. And you will be rewarded handsomely for that trade-off. Again, off topic, but it's like a long-winded way of saying it's not the same thing. It's not mm-hmm. like normal life. It's different. So I think when you when you see a player, and like Giannis is a super smart and thoughtful dude, and I did think this was a smart and thoughtful answer in spite of how you or I may feel about the validity of it. But I think you see in that moment where it's like you're reaching for a comparison and there isn't one. Exactly. Like, there just isn't. So quickly because we're we're running long here as always what do the bucks do now what does next season look like for them what does the off season look like for them brooks about to be a free agent middleton's got this 40 million dollar player option that i don't know he may or may not pick up what are your feelings about this team moving forward man i i don't want it to be a cop out but i genuinely have no idea because on one hand it's like well if you don't if those guys are gone they're not going to be gone 
No, I I know, but I'm just saying if I, I'm showing it like if those guys were to be gone in some, the Bucks don't exactly have the flexibility to come even close to replacing either one of them in in terms of value, right? And then if you keep them, and you lock them up, maybe not super long term, but some form of long term, and you've got the, both those guys in their mid thirties and Drew at his like, the Bucks will still have a chance next year for sure, but. Like you already spoke this season about how creaky they have become, right? Yep. And unathletic in certain ways and not quick enough. Like, you think that's going to get better with those guys back next season? Again, like I, I think they should be back, and I think they will still have a chance to win next year. But I think their chances of winning with this same core are diminished next season compared to what they were this year. And if they do bring Brooke back, that second apron is going to be looming for them as well yep like that's kind of on the yep. horizon but I, I they have to they can't let brooke walk no I they don't. just can't he's too valuable and there will will definitely be a team out there that is going to be willing to to throw a big offer at him because of how valuable he is i mean his skill set is one that is just really really hard to replicate you know there are yep. pretty much nobody else in the league can do what he does in terms of rim protection and offensive versatility so they got to bring him back. I, you know, Middleton, maybe he picks up the option. Maybe he doesn't, but one way or another, I think they find a way to keep him in the fold. And maybe it's like they sign him to a deal and think about trying to flip him down the road. You know, I'm curious because I thought his defense this season after he came back was just not the same. And it was a real problem in this playoff series. And that's what has me concerned. Like, it's funny. You look at the core group. Brooke Lopez just turned 35. Holiday's about to turn 33. Middleton's actually, he's 32. He's the youngest of those three guys. And he's the one who I thought has like shown signs. And this is probably just related to the injuries. So I don't want to maybe read too much into it. But he was the one who showed the most signs of decline this season. And the one that I would honestly be like most concerned about what's he going to look like next season. But in general, I just say, I still have a ton of faith in that like core quartet being a really good regular season team and being a fearsome playoff team as well. It's the pieces around those guys where I'm like, yeah, okay. Like look at who you were relying on this season to round out your rotation. Like 35 year old Joe Ingles, you know, like 32 year old Jay Crowder who didn't play a minute. I don't think in games four and five of this series after they shelled out five second round picks to get him at the deadline. And, you know, Pat Connaughton, who's over 30 and, Wes Matthews, Wes Matthews, 36 years old. Like these are the guys that they're relying on to fill out their rotation on top of the fact that yes, Brooke Lopez had maybe his best season this year, but he's also 35. And how much longer can you count on him to keep playing at this level? Yeah. You remember coming into the year, I said, I, I predicted the Bucks to win the championship in what I said could be the last ride, last hurrah type of season for this core. Not even because they, they would go their separate ways after it, just because I thought they're getting up there in age. It's hard to keep winning. Um, and, and so I predicted them to win the title in what would be a last hurrah kind of season for this core. And instead, they didn't win the title. They lost in the most humiliating fashion in the first round. All right. Well, that feels like as good a place as any to leave it. Can, Sorry, you can, look like you have one more thing to say. I was going to say, you want, you want me to take us out on a, on a lighthearted note after this just heavy 90 minutes? Yeah, please. So I don't think Giannis uh, is actually the most you know disappointing player or anything like that in the playoffs. I think uh, actually the most disappointing player in the playoffs for me is a guy whose team is still standing. And it's not for anything 
he did or didn't do on the court. It's for what he said. In an otherwise great profile of P.J. Tucker in the Philadelphia Inquirer by Marcus Hayes, you should check it out. P.J. Tucker said, I wasn't a big fan of Italy. Italian food in America is way better than Italian food in Italy. (sighs) This was honestly unbecoming of a sportsman. (laughs) This is the Fredo Corleone of food takes and made more disgusting by the fact Tucker played a good chunk of his career in Europe and spent plenty of time in Italy, which I've talked to him about in the past, by the way. He's supposed to be more gastronomically cultured than this. The only possible excuse I can think of is that during his time in Italy, perhaps he only stopped in the very touristy restaurants in the busiest tourist centers of Italy, which may as well at that point be Americanized Italian restaurants anyway. But other than that, I have no idea what in the hell PGA Tucker is eating or thinking. Come on, PJ. Good God. That's, I needed to get that off my chest. Let's just consider that our second round Sixers Celtics preview. The, I, Celtics in four is the pick. <laughs> the Sixers are toast <laughs> if this is the kind of intellect. Um, Anyway, yeah, we're not going to get to second round previews today, obviously, because we're already, you know, butting up against an hour and a half here. So, I mean, we'll be back early next week and the second round will be underway and we'll have lots of thoughts on that. We didn't do a first round preview, so what the hell? We won't do a second round preview either. We're insulating ourselves cash from the potential backlash of having terrible series predictions. And there's there's no great. failure here, Wolfon. There's yeah, no look, failure we, here. We can just we both had the the Heat winning. I didn't have them winning in five, but of course I had the Heat winning the first round. Yeah. Nobody will ever be any the wiser. So no second round previews, but suffice it to say that I am I'm really amped up for all these series, uh, especially Sixers Celtics and Nuggets Suns. I just think those are going to be absolute corkers. And if I had to bet. In spite of everything I said about it's wide open, any of these teams can win. I would definitely bet that that the eventual champion is going to come out of one of those two series, and that to me the two the finalists will come out of that. Like t- I'm not trying to take anything away from the Lakers, the Grizzlies, the Warriors, the Kings, the Knicks, or the Heat, but I will say that yes, if I was betting on it, I would look at Nuggets, Suns, and Sixers, Celtics as more of the conference finals right now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll. We the Suns Nuggets is going to start on Saturday. Uh, Celtics Sixers on Monday. Hopefully Embiid is able to get on the court for that game one. We will see. But again, we'll be back early next week to break it all down. And uh, we'll just leave all of that there and put a bow on this. So enjoy your weekend, everybody. Thanks as always for listening. If you've made it this far, <laughs> kudos to you. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Found the Rock.